The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone. Happy pre-holiday week, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Rublin, Senior Managing Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining us today as we discuss the outlook for markets in 2024. My guests are Barry Bannister, Chief Equity Strategist at Stiefel, and Barron Senior Writer Nick Jasinski, author of the 2024 Outlook cover story in this weekend's Barron's. 2023 looks to be ending on a surprisingly strong note as the Federal Reserve has telegraphed it will pivot to cut interest rates in the year ahead. So when, why, will that be good for the market? What else should investors know as the new year begins? I am hoping Barry and Nick will have the answers. So with that, welcome to Barron's Live, Barry and Nick. I am so happy to have you both on today's call. Thanks, Lauren. Hi, Barry. Thanks. Hi. So, Barry, we'll start with you. You have been calling for a secular bear market light from the market's peak in December 2021 until around 2030. I thought before we get to the 2024 outlook, it would be good to define the broader backdrop. What do you mean by a secular bear market light and why is that your forecast? Yeah, these tend to be periods of about 10 years where the inflation adjusted S&P 500 index level, and you can use the Dow Industrials as well or the NASDAQ, uh, tends to oscillate roughly sideways, trading in a wide range. Um, Now, what matters is, is the real. In other words, inflation adjusted. The purchasing power of money is all that money has value in. Uh, If I paid you in... uh, wages from the year 1920, you would not be very happy for very long. Uh, Money has lost value over time and inflation causes that to occur. So the S&P 500 index currently is 4741, peaked at about 4803 around, give or take, uh, first three days of January 2022. But in real terms, what you could buy with one unit of SPY or VOO, uh, it was 5350. So you don't have the purchasing power you had three years ago. You just don't. And uh, so we um, we adjust it for inflation, and that's what we, we look at. When you're flat for a decade in real terms, it's called a secular bear market. So why do you think the market's going to be flat for a decade? Well, uh, there's an entire section. Um, most of our work and half of our slide deck is just devoted to the next six months and the six months after that. And then the last half of the deck... Uh, is the decade ahead. And when we look at the uh, factors that drive the, the, the decade ahead from you know going back to that peak, let's call it December 30, 2021, the intraday high to uh, uh, 2031, uh, the main factors are gradual reflation and the, and the, fact, the effect of geopolitics uh, and Fed factors and labor market factors on this gradual reflation and a normalization or drop in the price earnings multiple of the market. The nominal earnings over the course of 2020 to 2030, they're going to double. Earnings will double. Um, 
we look at real trends. We look at uh, DuPont ratio, uh, DuPont models on the S and P industries. We we coalesce it into an estimate. We know that we know that's going to happen. So the nominal earnings will double, but the price earnings multiple, which peaked at an egregiously high level, is going to have over the course of a decade. And uh, that was the um, uh, the call. So what you end up with is a halving of the multiple, a doubling of earnings, and roughly a flat market in real terms. So let's, let's talk about 2024. You like to issue six-month forecasts, and you see the S&P 500 topping out around 4650 around the middle of next year. That is probably above the index level when you issued your forecast in early December, but it's below the S&P today. The S&P was trading at 4737 this morning. So two questions. Are you tempted to raise your target price for the S&P for mid-year? And how do you see the first half of the year unfolding? Yeah, the, what's happening, Lauren, is that um, many of the factors that affect the 10-year view affect the short term as well. If you think about what causes the reflationary environment, it's populism. And I would argue that both Biden and Trump are both populists. Um, populists tend to be more, more pro-labor, uh, less in favor of capital, more in favor of just pure out labor. Uh, they tend to be protectionist. Uh, the conflicts uh, tend to arise as states turn inward, trade stagnates, uh, and uh, reflationary fiscal policy takes over. People want a check. They want a handout. So whether it's a retiree or, or someone else, they want to be, it's the, it's the everyone bailout philosophy. So when you have large fiscal deficits and banks getting less interest on their reserves over time and banks lending the money out and people going long things, short money, which is what taking a loan is. I own a house, I'm short money. Um, and, uh, and the populism and the conflict, you're going to benefit value. Value always wins when that occurs. Growth always wins during what's called disinflation. That's when rate of inflation falls. So when the, in the next six months, it's going to prove out whether the Fed is correct about inflation really durably coming down and whether it goes down anywhere near their 2% goal and whether it stays there. In other words, could rate cuts be reflationary? Um, there are a number of factors involved. Wages are still too strong. And we've had the unconventional view, I should say, that we already had the equivalent of a recession from the first quarter of 22 to the first quarter of 23. Every single indicator said you're in a recession except labor. And labor is the one weak spot that the Fed faces because they haven't brought wages down and they haven't loosened up the labor market. Um, the question is now productivity. Can you get more out of the workers you have? If you do, then you can hit your inflation target. If you don't, you fail. And the Fed will find that out within six months. So everyone expects the Fed to play a starring role next year as it declares the inflation battle won as it begins to cut rates. The Fed has signaled that it, it sees about three rate cuts next year. The market sees more at the moment. Nobody knows when these rate cuts will begin. Everybody has an opinion. Barry, what is your opinion? When do you, when do you think the well, cutting will start? And do you think it makes yeah, sense? I, I think the Fed would like to cut rates. And of course they endorse that three cut view. Uh, but uh when we look at CPI or PCE inflation, um, you know, it peaked around 3% CPI and two and a half, two and three quarters uh, PCE in 2011, 2016, 2018, 2019, uh, in both cases. And 
if it holds on to just let's just call it three percent let's say three percent is the new floor and three percent used to be the ceiling it's the new floor then the fed has to ask themselves well that's the same mistake that happened twice before late 40s and 50 early 50s to and and in the late 60s early and in the 70s so not going back below the old ceiling means that your floor is a bounce pad for higher inflation or a bounce in inflation by mid-decade full resource utilization capacity utilization global economic recovery uh tight labor markets the only thing that saves the Fed is high productivity. If it happens, they're great. But if not, they fail. And um, so we're we're really focused on the fact that the Fed is they're taking a really big roll of the dice here by uh, turning dovish um, at full employment with you know large fiscal deficits and other things going on. It's going to be a very interesting year. And I suspect people will be both right and wrong as events unfold. I wanted to turn to Nick now and ask a bit about the Barron's market outlook. Nick, you surveyed a bunch of top Wall Street strategists for your cover story. Their median forecast for the new year is 48.38. That's for the full year. But that's only because Ed Yardeni, the most bullish of the strategists, has a 5,400 target, and that skewed the average. You seem to be leaning in the story more toward Yardeni's bullish view of the world. Based on your reporting and analysis, how did you see the first year playing? Excuse me, how do you see next year playing out? I, I, uh, I think Dr. Ed and I share a, a general optimism. Um, I like that. Towards life and that, <laughs> right and that, wrong, uh, I like it. that affects our market views as well a little bit for better or worse. But, but I think that the, um, um, it, it'll be a story of two halves of the year where the starting point now, given the rally that we've seen since October, the starting point is tough. Um, there's a lot of still open questions about um, the timing and the quantity of Fed cuts, the the, the odds of a, a, um, a recession that does actually impact the, the labor market. And, and there are just a lot of unresolved questions that will take some time and months of economic data to resolve in the first half of the year. Um, the headlines from abroad on the geopolitics front are probably going to be pretty ugly as they have been. Um, so it looks like it's a bumpy first half, given the, the, the rally we've had and, and just all these uncertainties out there. Um, but I'm optimistic that the market will be significantly higher by year end um, with, a, with a pretty wide range of outcomes around that. But, but there is a path towards inflation being near or at the Fed's target, um, whether that's that, that 3% level that Barry is talking about or, or, or lower, um, by which point the Fed will be easing. Um, the, also, the presidential election and all the uncertainty associated with that will be behind us. Um, and, and the outlook for 2025 will be the main topic of conversation. And it's very likely that'll be a recovery year from, from a slower 2024. And um, I think that we may get another year-end rally to, to end 2024, just as we saw in 2023. Interesting. It's something to look forward to. I wanted to go back to the notion of the election. And Barry, I wanted to ask you, how can the Fed avoid the appearance of political interference this year as it begins rate cuts in a presidential election year? Well, the, if the data back it up, if the inflation rate falls very sharply and, uh, you know, things that most worry people like wages uh, cool off, rents cool off um, on the shelter inflation, uh, if the 
durable goods inflation or de disinflation turns into more deflation and continues to stay there. If all those things happen, the Fed can use the economy as cover. But if they are ever forced into a position where the data are moving against them and they're making excuses of why and they're still maintaining a dovish posture, then surely the acquisition, you know, the accusations would fly of what they're doing. Don't you think this Fed is too smart for that? I hope so. Uh, I think uh, they say they're following the data and uh, like John Lovitz at SNL, that's their story and they're sticking to it. Um, I'm going to give them credit for say, doing what they say, but we're going to hold them to it. All right. Fair enough. I'm going to uh, come back to you. Go ahead, Nick. Did you want to say something? I uh, just said Powell and the Fed um, certainly stood up to a lot of political pressure in the, in the, the Trump years and I don't see why it should be any different this year. I don't think that politics is, is what's, what's driving their decision making. A good point. So, Barry, I'm going to come back to you to talk about sectors and stocks that you like for next year. But first, I want to get a read from Nick on some of the big companies that are reporting earnings this week. We're going to hear from FedEx, which is often seen as a bellwether for the economy, and from Nike, which offers a window into consumer spending trends. So, Nick, let's start with FedEx. The company reports Tuesday the stock has had an amazing year, especially in the past two months. Of course, that compensates for a poor year in 22. What is happening at FedEx and what will you be looking for in the company's latest earnings report? Um, yeah, Lauren, its stock is up 63% this year. Um, like you mentioned, that's after a, a rotten 2022 and it's still below where it ended 2021. So so it's it's not fully recovered um, from 2022, but, but it has been quite a year for FedEx. And that's really, it's been dr driven by um, optimism about the economy in 2024, which is good for volumes of shipping, which is what FedEx does, of course. Um, also, more recently in the past two months, there's been signs that volumes in and out of Asia have been improving. And, and for, for FedEx and UPS, those international shipments are, are more profitable than the domestic stuff. Um, the, the longer term story with FedEx is, is that they're, they're on this multi-year path to lowering costs, improving their profit margins, and trying to close the gap with UPS, which, which has long been operated more cleanly and, and with better margins. Um, but it will be, I mean, so that'll be the main test for, for, I think, what investors will be looking for is progress on that front. Um, the analyst forecast is for earnings per share to be up 32% year over year on more or less flat revenue. So there is some margin expansion there. Um, the operating margin consensus estimate is 7%, which would be up a percentage point from a year ago. Um, but again, compare that to UPS, which has an operating margin around 14%. So, so twice as profitable as FedEx. I know you're not the FedEx reporter in the office, but how big a threat is Amazon? Um, you know, this is something that keeps coming up uh, about FedEx um, and really has been for years. Um, the, the the overall pie of e-commerce and, and the amount of stuff that we ship is growing fast enough that there's room for FedEx and Amazon to to both increase the size of their business. Fair enough. We were recently in Spain and we didn't see any Amazon trucks and we thought, well, the roads are clear here, and then suddenly one of them swerved in front of us. Oh, wow. so they're everywhere. Anyway, let's talk about Nike. It has done nothing this year. Obviously, it's been hurt by the slowdown in China's economy and other issues. Barron's has been positive on the stock, however. It was a recent stock pick of our colleague Jacob Sonnenschein. Tell us how that's going, and tell us what the earnings outlook is for Nike. It's been a good pick. Um, Jacob picked that in August. And the stock is up almost 35% since then. So, so it's a uh, well-timed. Um, and like you mentioned, now it's about flat year to date. Um, Nike's issues have been mostly on the inventory side. 
where they just have too much inventory and so they have to discount to, to clear that through. Um, and um, China has also been an issue where, where the consumer spending has been weaker than some people thought last year and, and this year. Um, um, now it seems like that inventory issue is mostly resolved. Um, they've talked already about on the last quarter um, that the, the freight costs and supply chain um, costs are down significantly, um, which then brings the focus back to the macro outlook, how much consumers around the world are spending on athletic apparel and sneakers. And there's just, there's been more optimism about that lately. Um, I will say for the, for the coming quarter or the quarter that they're about to report, which ends in November, um, analysts do not see any margin expansion from a year ago. So, so that, that is not in the numbers. So if Nike does deliver on, um, on what the, the, the stock market seems to be giving them credit for with that rally lately, um, then that should be a upside surprise as they call it on the earnings number. Um, they may say something about the holiday shopping season as well, or, uh, give some kind of info about 2024. So that's what I'll be looking for. That sounds good. What about Carnival, the cruise line operator? It also reports this week. And cruising seems to be back with a vengeance after, you know, a near-death experience during COVID. What does that mean for Carnival? And what did it mean for Carnival's latest quarter? Yeah, cruising is booming. Um, if last year was the recovery year for airlines and hotels, this year seems to be the, the cruise line recovery year. And, and just how expensive flight tickets are and hotel rooms seems to be driving more people to, to cruises as well. Um, where pricing has not uh, moved up nearly as much. Um, I think most of our listeners know that NVIDIA is the best performing S&P 500 stock this year. It's up 240%. Um, maybe fewer people will know that second place in the S&P 500 year to date is Royal Caribbean and third is Carnival. That's amazing. About, about 130% year to date. Um, but again, when you zoom out a little bit, a bit um, so Carnival stock has gone from about $7 late last year to it's around, it's a little over $18 today. Um, but right before COVID, it was at $65. So it's, this is not exactly a long-term winner. The starting point really helps. Um, but again, it's, it's things are looking better than they have been since 2019 for the cruise industry. Um, last quarter management at Carnival said that occupancy levels were at their historical average. Um, and uh, it's, it's, um, a lot of this is also expecting a good year in 2024. They're still expected to report a net loss this fiscal year, which, which just ended in November. So this will be their, their fiscal year report. Um, that'll be the fourth straight year of losses and then manage, uh, wall street is expecting return to profits next year. So I think the guidance will probably be the most important part of the results that they report on Thursday. People seem to have money and they seem to want to get out and travel. So if, if you are correct about the market looking good in 24 and 25, that would seem to bode well for the cruise industry. Yeah. All right, let's talk about Micron briefly, and then we'll get back to Barry and some of the sectors he likes. What are you expecting from Micron's earnings? This is the memory chip maker, of course. Yeah, this is it's one of the big three. Um, it's an oligopolistic market. SK Hynix and Samsung are the other two. Um, it's a cyclical industry, boom and bust cycles. Um, right now, we're in the later innings of the downturn or possibly the first innings of the, of the recovery in the memory cycle. Um, that's well, I mean, that's that's reflected in the stock before it actually shows up in the fundamentals every single cycle. Um, it's again, it's up 60 percent year to date on that expectation of a recovery beginning to happen. Um, and, and its management is agreeing with that. They updated their guidance for the for this quarter, which they're about to report on November 28th. So I think the numbers for the quarter probably won't be much of a surprise because of they just gave updated guidance three weeks ago. Um, so it said it'll be all about what they say. Um, about volumes in the industry, inventory levels, pricing for, for NAND and DRAM. Those are the two markets in memory that, they, that they're active in. 
um, and and about new guidance that they give for for the coming quarters. Um, so so it just this will be a, a reality check. Um, investors want to see that we are actually in the early early innings of a memory upcycle and hear confirmation of that from management. Um, and and I think what will move the stock will be the implications for future quarters in 2024 or 2025 um, and how analysts will price uh, change their estimates for the, for those future quarters. As always, pay attention to the guidance. Yep. So, Barry, we know that the Magnificent Seven tech stocks and two cruise stocks apparently drove the market higher this year. What do you think is going to happen in 24? Do you see those tech stocks retaining their strength? Do you see the market broadening significantly? And if so, um, where do you see the best gains ahead? Well, we went into 2023 uh, opposite the consensus, which was uh, negative first half, positive second half. We were very positive in first half and said the market would level out in the second half, which is what happened. Um, the the other thing to consider is uh, cyclical versus defensive. Okay, so uh, you know everything from technology to banks uh, to industrials is cyclical, and then defensive would be things like healthcare and utilities and so forth, uh, things that you absolutely always buy no matter what. Um, you know, I like to to position for things that if they, if they have to happen, or the whole market's going to come down. So in other words, if you're going to make a bet on a, on a position, you want to make it so that uh, if it doesn't happen, you know the outcome on the other side, which is that the S&P has to fall. Um, if we don't get a rally in cyclicals and improved results on the cyclical side of the economy, the market's coming down. Um, so, uh, for example, if you lay the ISM PMI or purchasing manager index manufacturing on top of the year to year change for the S&P 500, do it monthly for the last 25 years, you'll see that at 21% year over year, the S&P 500 cannot stay here unless the ISM rises. It's currently uh, around 46 and a half, 47. If it does not go back into the low 50s, the market will come down. And so, um, you know, if we started out uh, assuming that the ISM stays in the high 40s, uh, the market's going to be down 5% year over year by mid-year, and that would put it down about 500 points on the S&P. Um, so what we like is uh, because we, we think that the economy is going to get better on the lagging cyclical side, the part that's been most lagging because of the dollar, China, and other factors then we like cyclical value, which is um, right now it's, it's banks, capital goods, energy, financial services, insurance, basic materials, some real estate and transportation. So the when things they, that didn't move so much this year. Right. And they, they actually reflect, they reflect um, their, their, um, their relative performance year over year, basically for the last you know, 15 years, prices and no improvement. They assume no change in this very weak PMI manufacturing. On the other hand, if you look at cyclical growth, which is your most of your M7, you know you've got Alphabet and Meta and Nvidia and Apple and Tesla in there. They already reflect their year-to-year -year change in relative uh, to the S&P. Their year-to-year -year change already reflects a low 60s PMI. That's simply implausible. We're not going to go to the low 60s. That would mean the Fed would have to start tightening again pretty significantly 
uh, inflation would turn back up at the pipeline level, it would not be good. So I'm, you know, I've got a long short here, long cyclical value, short cyclical growth. So long the laggard value and short the big tech, uh, uh, more cyclical side of big tech. I mean, I left out Microsoft. They're not part of that group, uh, but there's other stocks that, that are, and they have run too much. What do you think about international stocks? International, small cap relative to large and value relative to growth are all the same trade. Uh, look at any chart, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. We have all of them. Um, they Their relative performance is always the same. Uh, they move together over, you know, over time. And uh, the uh, best indicator that we've ever had or found uh, for, for their performance would be commodity prices. Commodities capture everything that I just mentioned earlier. They capture reflation, nominal GDP growth, pressure on the dollar, Fed policy, geopolitics, commodities, everything. So commodity prices uh, bottomed double bottomed actually in 2018 and 2020 at what were depressionary lows. I mean, we had not seen those lows since the depression in the thirties on a rolling 10 year compound price basis. Um, and as they bounced up, if they keep going higher on a rolling 10 year compound basis, then value will beat growth. Small will beat large and international will beat domestic. And that's really, that's my bet. That's where I'm positioned personally. Mm -hmm. Hey Barry, I'm wondering what about healthcare stocks? They've got some value attributes, some some defensive, some growth. Where do yeah. they fit in? Yeah, what we do is we do four quadrants. We do a grid. We take the, the what's called the GIX or Global Industry Classification Standard uh, Level Two. There's 25 industries now. Uh, they just added one more, um, and we figured out that based on the last 40 years, um, and and we've gone back as far as as 90 years using some of the uh, Ken French data, um, that um, that healthcare, uh, or excuse me, that two factors drive the drive the industry groups: either inflation, and that's you know versus expectations if it's hot or cold, and that's going to affect interest rates and price earnings multiples. And the other factor is economic growth, which affects earnings. Earnings are very much affected by that. So the defensive side, healthcare, um, we. Um, we, we're not too interested in defensive healthcare equipment services or defensive value, um, for example. Uh, pharmaceutical, biotech, and life sciences are also defensive value. Uh, they benefit when you have more inflation, but also very weak economic growth, which is not my view. Mm -hmm. I actually think we have better than expected global economic growth and uh, better than expected or at least sticky inflation. And so that pushes me into the cyclical value that I just mentioned. The the you know financials, energy, industrials, basic materials, real estate, and so on. I want to get to some listener questions, and oh, boy, we have a lot today. That's great. I want to start with Matt, who asks, "What about stocks versus bonds in 2024?" We've talked mostly only about stocks. What about bonds? Um, do you want me to answer? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, it's interesting that the twos tens inversion is actually worse than when the Fed pivoted. I, I don't know if it's the two or the ten, you know. But if I think it's the two, then the market might be doubting whether the Fed's making a good move because with the tight labor markets and the resource utilization picking up over two years, then they would have to reverse course, perhaps. 
but the twos are down less than the tens from the pivot. Um, and if you look at bonds, uh, and I'm thinking treasuries here, corporate spreads is a different question. Um, the, you know, when, when Volcker came along in the late 70s, um, for many years in the first half of the 80s, I was on the buy side in the 80s. Um, and I remember, you know, you remember too, the, the they made movies about Solomon Brothers Trading Desk with, uh, <laughs> I uh, do. you know, with uh, the Forrest Gump character, what's his name, uh, the actor. Um, oh, Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks, yeah. So um, I don't think Solomon would have hired Forrest Gump, but that's a different question. Um, so um, the- Might be today if it did, right? <laughs> might have improved trading for a day or two. Um, so, you know, the high real interest rates and uh, and the, the memories of inflation in the prior two decades caused rates to stay a good bit higher, yields to stay a good bit higher than they probably should have. You had very high real returns to bonds. On the other hand, Powell is pivoting after 20 plus years of deflation or disinflationary pressure. And I think bonds might be understating where they need to go. Um, if they normalize the 10 year real yield, which is called the tips yield at 2%, you know, a little bit plus or minus. And right now it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's been plunging. So it's now down to 1.72, but it, if it's 2% or maybe even a little higher, having been much higher in the past. And then you add inflation. So you've got a real yield plus the inflation part that's your nominal 10-year treasury. Um, we know what inflation is. It's, uh, it's crude oil prices um, at 60 to 100. It's equivalent to 2 to 3% 10-year break-evens. You can use five and fives and other things. I mean, we, as I say to my associates, we do a lot of stuff behind the scenes that you never see on the deck because we need to know we're right when we put it in the deck. Um, but uh, no matter what, we, you know, two and a half percent is $80 a barrel. I'm 100% sure that Saudi doesn't want oil much below 80. Um, Russia can play some shenanigans uh, in the mid of 24 before the election, and I think they will. Um, and so when you add that up, $80, Two and a half percent inflation, two percent real treasury yields should be yielding four point five, and that's indefinitely. Um, so as they go below that, that's artificial or it's a slowdown. And right now, with the Fed's actions, I would call it artificial. Uh, Fed is probably making a mistake, uh, but longer term uh, yields need to adjust upward, and that means price earnings ratios need to adjust downward. And um, the market's going to see that more and more over the course of the 2020s decade. Hence that secular bear market light. Yeah. And it, get wor it gets worse. There's other things that are quite bad. So Lee has a question. Before we get to the worst, let's talk about this. Lee has a question. He notes that you have substantial expertise in the machinery and engineering sectors of the market. What do you think about the contention that it is this area of the market that is likely to see the biggest boost in productivity in the long run from AI? Oh, well, <clears throat> you know, since Don Fites was CEO back in the 90s, I've been listening to Caterpillar talk about uh, machine automation. Um, I, I think there's limits to that simply because people get killed on job sites if a uh, mistake is made and you don't want to uh, have a machine override people. Um, you can have a machine complement people, but never override um, 
those decisions. So I, I, I don't think that automation will be that big of a deal on construction machinery. It is on mining machinery to an extent, and it's very much that way in agriculture with John Deere. But um, there are other industries probably that are more affected by AI, like the law profession <laughs> and the medical profession. Uh, but um, the um, machinery industry is not really one that I would gravitate to as just a, an AI play. Got it. All right. We have a completely different sort of question from Carol. How will a potential government shutdown in January affect your outlook for the beginning of the year? Um, okay. Me again. Um, the, yes. The, the, um, the, the government shutdowns now are really just political theater. <clears throat> there are shutdowns, except we will continue to pay X, Y, Z, A, B, C, D. You know, they pay everything. <clears throat> or they make it up in arrears, so it's just a paid vacation for you know a lot of government workers. It's a it's a little disruptive, but I think it's less of an issue than it used to be. Uh, it's lost its novelty, um, so I wouldn't really worry too much about the shutdown effects. I agree. So, I think we've we've become desensitized to it, and the market looks through these now, having lived through many of these and realized that it's all political theater at the end of the day. The can gets kicked further down the road. So related to that, we had a question from Rajesh about the beginning of the year with the market up so much in November and December and the Fed signaling no more rate increases and future cuts. How do you position for the first couple of months of 24? Do you expect a correction in January due to the big gains? How, how do you position for, say, the next two, three months? That's um, for you, Barry. Okay. Yeah. As I said before, it's either cyclical or bust. You know, you could take a bumper sticker and say cyclical or bust. You know, if we don't get cyclical recovery, we're going to bust. Um, so the market can't stay here without a cyclical recovery in uh, the global economy, not just the U.S., but global. And I'm not talking about a large one, but I'm saying the global PMI manufacturing would go to about 51 from the high 40s. The U.S. PMI would go back above 50 to 53, which is our spring 2024 target. Uh, if it doesn't, then it's not going to stay here. Um, financial conditions have eased, but, you know, I, I can go back and look at the U.S. financial conditions index for the last 30 years, 35 years. Um, if you look at it, it, clearly the only times we went much easier than here, we either were fighting a massive deflationary shock like the global financial crisis or COVID, or we were preparing a bubble. So. Greenspan cut rates and um, financial conditions eased dramatically in 98, 99 in response to an EM debt crisis in Y2K. But that caused a tech bubble, which blew up spectacularly. Also, um, they cut rates and helped trigger a housing bubble in the O's, 20 O's. So I, I think it's um, policy malpractice for the Fed not to pay attention to the financial conditions index. They don't want, you know, stability what is it minsky uh stability breeds instability they don't want financial conditions to be too easy so they're getting easy fast after that recent pivot and some pushback would be advisable at this point to prevent now the price earnings ratio lines up with the fci and we think there's moderate earnings growth in 2024 of 10 percent streets at 14 percent um the market's fully valued here and uh based on the financial conditions index overlaid against the price earnings multiple. And uh, there's really no, no story there at the C level, meaning the market. 
what's happening is the currents below sea level are shifting more in favor of cyclical, less on defensive, more in favor of basic cyclical, less in favor of just big tech. So Timothy asks about the Magnificent Seven. Will they continue to lead the equities market in 24? And Nick, I think you feel a little bit better about them than Barry does. Am I right? I do, I, I do think that they can continue to lead, um, not nearly by as much as in 2023, but um, the, the, they're expected to grow earnings and revenues faster than the rest of the market in the coming year. And when you look at since some, some folks look at this thing called the peg ratio, it's the price to earnings multiple divided by the expected growth. And by that measure, um, the big seven as a whole, there's of course differences between each of those seven, but. Nick, did we lose you? I don't see why they can't continue to lead. Okay, I'll, I'll note that Andrew recommended one of the big seven in his 10 best stocks for the new year. That was Alphabet. And we had a positive piece about Amazon in the magazine this weekend by Jack Howe. So Barry, can I go back to you for a minute with a question of my own? You mentioned other bad things coming out later in the in the decade. What's the worst thing you see? Well, you know, I hate to be Debbie Downer here, another SNL character, uh, but <laughs> um, you know, there is no good history historically when you bounce off of a depression low for commodities. If you think of the world as land, labor, and capital, land, labor, and capital, um, land symbolized by commodities, labor, um, you know, disinflation, <laughs> free trade, billion new Chinese workers. It was not very kind to a lot of the labor America. Um, and the only people who did well were urban service provider, providers who had no competition from overseas, who were able to buy cheaper goods produced by foreign trade. So there was a classic setup for populism. The four times in 200 years where we have bottomed out commodities at a 10-year growth rate of minus seven or so, and we did that again, as I said, in 2018 and 2020, but we also did it in 1930 and 33. We also did it in 1875 and 1878. We also did it in 1825. The four times we gave rise to a massive populist wave, which led to inward focus, uh, protectionism, and conflict. So in the 2020s, we're going to have this climate war eroding the reliable supply of oil and gas. We got turbulence coming in the Middle East, Taiwan and North Korea and probably that order. Um, and AI is probably going to deflate services relative to hard assets. So when you think about AI, it, 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 it deflates the cost of services, which, as I said, did very well against goods in the last 20 years when you had free trade. Um, services deflate relative to things you can't create with AI, which is commodities, houses, gold, things that are tangible. Um, and so that all is a setup for a lot of domestic strife, a lot of over 55s leaving the workforce, a tightening of the labor markets, uh, domestic and international tension. Um, I have a hard time seeing it as really positive, but you know, I'm not one of the pie in the sky AI tech fans that thinks it's going to be a smooth transition. If it fulfills its promise, there's going to be an awful lot of people unemployed by it. And that's not going to be positive. So what will the 2030s bring since we're in the predictions business here? Well, I don't know if it'll even bring me if I'm still here. Uh, <laughs> oh, you'll be on Baron's live again. Don't uh, worry. I don't know. 
Um, but the, um, you know, by the 30s, we will have adjusted. Um, we'll know if China is headed towards some parity with the U.S. or not. We'll know uh, the ultimate resolution of uh, some of the conflicts in Taiwan, the Middle East, North Korea with Kim. Um, we'll, we'll know a lot of things by the 30s. So I think by the 30s, we'll bottom out and then begin a new bull market. But that's that's a long time, 15 years. And it's not the first time we've done that, you know. Stocks have a long history of doing poorly during these periods where um, you enter the environment I just described. And uh, being flattish for 10 years, 15 years is in real terms is not particularly appetizing if you're retiring now and you need your money to last. So let's just remember that all kinds of change and ferment also create opportunities. Just have to no. wait for them. You do, you do, but you have to be alert to them as well. So why don't we leave the call there? And I love your sense of history and sense of perspective. Uh, hopefully the world will turn out to be a little brighter than the gloomy outlook you've just given us, but we'll see. And we'll definitely have you back on Barron's Live and do a reality check maybe around mid-year. Thank you so much for joining us today. And Nick, thank you as always. Wonderful cover story. And thanks thank for your you. comments today. Tomorrow on Barron's Live, our colleagues from MarketWatch will look at what 2024 has in store for AI and AI investments. Jeremy C. Owens of MarketWatch will speak with Maribel Lopez, founder and analyst at Lopez Research, on the future of AI technology and the implications for technology stocks. Continuation to some degree of today's discussion. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. Thanks for your questions as well. Stay well and have a good day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.